Now the apostles and the brothers and sisters who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in this order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air, and I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, what God has made clean do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who was called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. And I remember the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Spirit, Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Amen. Let's pray. Father, uh, your word is living and active, and your word is profitable for teaching and training and correcting and rebuking. Your word accomplishes the purposes for which you send it. For those of us who are prideful, your word will bring humility. For those who are downcast, Lord, your word will lift us up. For those who have gotten off the path and are losing our way, your word will be a lamp unto our feet and your word will guide us back to you. Father, you know every single person in this room. You know the number of hairs on our heads and the number of days that we will live on this earth. And you know what our hearts need and how our hearts need more of you. And so would you be pleased through the words of your servant to build up your people. May our, be, uh, our love for Jesus be stretched and may our hearts be stretched to obey you and love you more. Forgive us of our sins, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So a few years ago, we were in, in D.C., and we stumbled upon Jenny's Splendid Ice Cream, and it changed our lives. If you haven't had Jenny's, you can go to Whole, Whole Foods down the street and get you a tin of it. It's going to hit you for about $9, so uh, it ain't cheap, but it's good ice cream. So we discovered it a couple years ago, and then a couple months ago, we happened to listen to the podcast, How I Built This. Any of you listen to that, you'll know that Guy Ross will 
interviewed numerous entrepreneurs, numerous business owners, and his goal is to tell their story. How did you take this company or this thing and build it and, and make it something that is appreciated by numerous people? Well, lo and behold, Jenny of Jenny's Splendid Ice Cream was being interviewed this day about how she built her brand. She didn't graduate from college. She didn't even take the SAT. She was not uh, admitted into Ohio State. She wrote a letter to the president telling him what he, she had been doing with her time, uh, and she was given admittance. She majored in art history and then uh, moved into perfume making. She, she wanted to learn how to make perfume. And then she had an epiphany. She felt like ice cream was the perfect carrier for perfume. So she went to the store and bought some chocolate Haagen-Dazs and rolled some cayenne pepper oil inside of the chocolate Haagen-Dazs. And I see some of y'all frowning. <laughs> and uh, she said it was delectable. She knew right then and there that she was made to create good ice cream. Her ice cream is so good, y'all. She thinks about the taste and the texture and the flavor and the mouthfeel and what it does when it melts on your tongue. I mean, she's thinking about all of this. And so she decides to take a stab at ice cream making. She opens up a business inside of a market in Columbus, Ohio, and it failed. She then went to Penn State and took some classes on ice cream making in their famous creamery, and she gave it a second go around. And this time her husband surprised her with a really expensive ice cream maker, and she went back to the same market and uh, began to sell ice cream again. And she began to sell ice cream to stores in Chinese food takeout boxes. And then she got cited uh, because that's illegal. You can sell at a market, but you cannot sell unregulated ice cream in stores. And so she had a decision to make. Do we scale up, open a store, and go postal? Or do we stay a small mom and pop outfit in a market in Columbus, Ohio? They scaled up. She got a loan for $250,000, opened her first store, and she was sailing. And then there was a problem. They had a listeria outbreak, and they could not figure out where it was coming from. And they traced it back to a store uh, in Nebraska, and she recalled everything. It cost her millions of dollars. They figured it out. And now Jenny's is down the street in Whole Foods. They do $40 million a year in sales. She will not sell it to the big company. And I think it's some of the best tasting ice cream on the planet. And it's been scaled from a small mom and pop operation in Columbus, Ohio, where only those who live there could enjoy it. And now they're going postal. They're taking their diverse ice cream to a diverse people group, diverse markets, that we might experience that flavor bomb in our mouths, right? What do I start with that? And you're like, what's the connection, Pastor L, right? 
At one point, Christianity was like a mom-and-pop operation. By and large, if you were Jewish in or around Jerusalem and you had the temple, you could be in. But if you were Gentiles, you could not taste of God's most glorious gift by and large. You had to jettison culture. You had to embrace a Jewish calendar. You had to undergo circumcision. You had to do a lot to enter in and to experience. And what Acts 10 and 11 remind us, God's heart was to go global. His heart was to go postal. His heart was to scale Christianity from being located to that people group in that part of the world. His heart was to go global. His heart was to bring the Gentiles and the nations in. His heart was to allow man, woman, child, people, every nation, tongue, tribe under heaven to taste of his goodness, express preeminently in the person and work of Jesus. And what Acts 10 and 11 do for us, they show us how we did it. They show us how God scaled Christianity, how he tore down walls and built bridges, how he built a long table and invited the nations to it, It even shows us of a problem that the early church had to work through. It shows us the help that he's given to help us along the way. And so that's what I want us to think about this morning. If you're at Redeemer, then my assumption is that God's heart for a multi-ethnic, Jesus-loving, parish-minded church, I don't have to convince you of that. If you're here, that resonates with your soul. So this morning, I just want to affirm that this vision and this mission that we hold precious, that it's biblical. And maybe you're here and you're trying to say, okay, well, I'm not convinced. Show me in God's word. Then we'll we'll look at it. But here's what I want us to think about this morning. God's longing to grow his diverse family. And I'm going to say our difficulty with that. And when I say our, I don't think we just point the finger at those of the circumcision group or Peter and say that that's just something y'all struggled with. No, I think if we're honest, we have a difficulty with it. And I want to show you God's help. How does he help us along the way? Let's look at God's longing to grow his diverse family. Now, Acts chapter 11, 1 through 18, is really a retelling of what happened in Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10, you don't have to turn there, but that's the the longest narrative in the book of Acts that's focused in on one person, and, and that's Peter and Cornelius. And then God says, just in case you didn't hear it the first time, I'm gonna put it in the Bible a second time, which is, this only happens with this episode. So this is an, an important scene in the book of Acts. But, but what happened in Acts chapter 10? Peter went into the home of Cornelius. Cornelius was an uncircumcised Gentile, and and Peter had table fellowship with him. 
The text actually reminds us that after Peter went, he preached, the Holy Spirit came, the Gentiles believed, they were baptized, received the Spirit, they began speaking in tongues, and then the text actually says, and Peter remained with them for some days. Now, here's the problem, that where Peter is in Acts 11 is in Jerusalem with other apostles and other brothers and sisters who heard that the Gentiles had received the word of the Lord. And so Peter goes up there and he really is giving a defense. It's as if Peter is on the stand. And the reason he's on the stand is not because he's talked to a Gentile. It's not because he did business with a Gentile. The reason he's on the stand, look at it with me right there in verse three. The circumcision circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and you ate with them. Their issue, you had a meal and you went in their homes. That's the issue. Now, why? Because it's, it's the way they view the table. The table was not just a place to consume calories. Few acts are more expressive of companionship than a shared meal. Someone with whom we share food is likely to be our friend or is well on the way to becoming one. Think about your dining room table, says Tim Chester. What dramas have been played out around it? Your values have been reinforced there. Guests have been welcomed there. People have found a home there. Love has blossomed there. Perhaps important decisions have made around that table. Perhaps you were reconciled with someone over a meal. Perhaps your family still bonds by laughing at the time you forgot to add sugar to your cake. Food connects. It connects us with family. It turns strangers into friends. That that's the real issue. The real issue is that Peter befriended, broke bread, had table fellowship with someone ceremonially unclean. And so Peter's on the stand and everything you see in Acts 11 is a recounting. And and it goes like this, like Peter's like, yo, I know y'all put me on the stand, but let me give you my defense on why I did what I did. And so Peter says, hey, I was in Joppa minding my business, and all of a sudden I was hungry, and I was on the rooftop praying, and then I was put in a trance. And then in the trance, I saw a vision and the vision came to me from heaven and the vision was this sheet with four corners and these four corners represent the four corners of the earth and it was rolled down to me from heaven and on the sheet were animals, birds of prey and reptiles, creatures that we don't eat in our culture, in our lane, in our culture and, and, and I heard a voice and the voice was God himself and the voice told me to rise, Peter, kill and eat and Peter says, but no, 
and notice he says, Lord. That's important because I actually think Peter's actually talking to the Lord Jesus Christ. And Peter says, Lord, I have never eaten anything unclean. Lord, I've never done anything common. And, and, and the Lord Jesus says, what God, the Father, has now declared can't clean, don't you call unclean. And this happens three times. And then the Holy Spirit, like, say, Peter, you need to go. And as soon as he finishes, he gets a knock on the door. And by the way, he got six Jewish brothers with him as witnesses. And when he, by the time he finishes a knock on the door and three Gentiles come to him and Holy Spirit says, hey, you got to go with him. He goes. And when he gets to Caesarea in, in Cornelius's house, now all of a sudden he hears that an angel who was ministering to Cornelius while Peter was in a trance, told Peter, hey, go get Peter. He's going to come back here and preach the gospel to you. And when he preaches, you will understand. When you understand, you'll believe and Holy Spirit will be poured out. And then look at what Peter says after he gives his defense. He says, as I, in verse 15, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how Jesus told me, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized by the Spirit. Verse 17, if then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus, who was I to stand in God's way? That's Peter's way of saying, I rest my case. This ain't my doing. I don't control trances. That's the voice of the Lord. These visions and angels, this sheet rolled down from heaven, taken up back to heaven. Peter's actually saying, if y'all got an issue with God growing his multi-ethnic church and, and engrafting people not like us into the same family, you don't take that up with me. You take it up with him. This is his doing. In other words, God is scaling Christianity, y'all. He's capturing market share. He's saying them Gentiles in Caesarea, they're mine. Those Gentiles in Philippi, they're mine. Those Gentiles in Thessalonica, they're mine. Those Gentiles in Ephesus, they're mine. And guess what? They're not just mine. They're ours together because I'm not building two different families. I'm building one family where we all bow the knee to the same Jesus. And so God is saying, we're scaling this thing. We're going postal. And I want the nations to benefit from my loving kindness. Now, why would he do that? Because God withholds no gift, no good gift from his people. God gives us life and breath and love and friendship and one another. But it would be wrong for God to give us secondary things and keep the most important gift from us. And that's his son. God is building his family because he is gracious. Secondly, there are a lot of people like Cornelius. And here's what I mean. If you go back and read, Cornelius' name, ironically, is not mentioned in Acts 11. He's just referred to he and his house. And so you have to kind of go back to Acts 10 to see who Cornelius is. But here's the thing. 
He's a good guy. What do you mean he's a good guy? He's called a God-fearer. That's the name for a Gentile who did not embrace the ceremonial law. They embraced the moral law, right? That's why you see him giving alms and making prayers and intercessions just like Peter's doing, right? He's a centurion. He's a powerful man. He commands 100 troops. It actually says he is well spoken of by all the Jews. Catch that. He's a religious dude. And guess what he's not until Peter comes? He's not rescued. God in his kindness sends Peter to this religious Gentile to rescue him from himself. And I think we got to hear that. That if, if, if Cornelius was all of that, he wouldn't need Peter to go to him and preach. And he wouldn't need to repent of his sins. He was not a believer at this point. And so what God is doing is growing his table by inviting religious people to lay that down and to find refuge in the person and work of Jesus. If you're here this morning and you think that God is impressed with your resume, with your good deeds, with everything you do, you're missing what Acts is saying. Acts is saying you need a savior. And what God is doing is rolling out salvation to people that they might hear the good news and then fall to their knees and repent and trust in the finished work of Jesus. So this is why God is doing it because it's religious people out there who are still lost. It's God's promise to Abraham. He says, through you, Abram, the nations will be blessed. And what the Jews did, they misread that. It's through circumcision, which actually comes after Abraham is counted righteous. He's counted righteous, says Paul, not because of circumcision. He's counted righteous, says Paul, because he believed and he rested in God. That is what makes us like Abraham. It's faith in God not works of the law. And so when God tells Abram, I'm going to bless the nations too through you, he's saying they're going to come in the same way you did through faith and through my call. But God also does this because he's God and we're not. Man, we live in a culture where we can, we can text a number and vote someone off of a TV show. You can call a number and vote for your favorite idol to make it to the next round. You can go to the ballot and put a vote in for elected officials. And here's the thing. God is not asking for your input on who he redeems. There is no hotline you call to say, I want them in and I want them out. God is sovereign. And he saves who he wants, how he wants, when he wants, for his own glory. And so when you see God commanding Peter, go to Caesarea, go to Cornelius' house, you see Peter did not, uh, kind of pushing back initially, but he ends up doing exactly what God wants him to do. Look, y'all, what Peter is saying is God is scaling Christianity. 
He's building a big and common table, and he's giving people from every nation, tribe, tongue, class, culture a seat at it. And this is why we want this. And it's wrong to oppose it. It's wrong. That's why Peter says at the end, who was I that I could stand in God's way? Secondly, difficulty is to be expected. Just because it's right, just because this is God's heart, just because we know the end of the story in Revelation, just because we know that we are of Abraham by faith and the nations are blessed through him, just because we read in Acts and we read in Romans and we read in Ephesians and we read in Colossians and we read in First Thessalonians and we see that this pattern was to not build a Jewish church and a Gentile church, that, that what Paul would say is this dividing wall of hostility has been torn down in Jesus Christ and in the place of two people, he has made one new race. Like we, we can read this in scripture and guess what? It ain't easy. It's not. We're going through officer training right now with deacons and elders. And this week, I mean, we're dealing with what does it mean to live in a racialized society? And how does that affect the church and the gospel? And so there's literature out there. If you want to read, I can give you articles. If you want to read, I can have Felicia send you books. And here's what you'll discover based on books written between 1969, Thurman Williams, Howard Thurman, I'm sorry, 1959, Howard Thurman, to last couple years. There's been a lot of progress. In 1998, 6% of churches in America were multi-ethnic. Multi-ethnic meaning no ethnic group is higher than 80%. That number now is 16%. So it feels like America is sort of waking up to God's beautiful mission. But what the newer books are saying is that it's hard. You can read an article, the multi-ethnic church has not lived up to its promise. You can find that. There's a concern that people want multi-ethnic churches but not multi-ethnic lives. That people think multi-ethnic churches is the measuring stick is how many cross-cultural different ethnic groups can you put in one room for one and a half hours on a Sunday morning. That's the measuring stick. Others will say people want multi-ethnic churches but they listen to mono-ethnic voices. Corey Edwards in her book, The Elusive Dream, She speaks about the struggles of people of color, the pain that people of color experience is not feeling like they're accepted for who they are, not being able to be themselves, not being able to worship how they want to worship, feeling like you have to fall in line with what white people expect of you. In the black church, African-Americans often dress formally and expect worship services to last about two hours on average. When they join diverse churches, they generally feel that white members insist on shorter services and favor more casual dress. 
Beyond style differences, she says black people in multiracial congregations may be reluctant to push for leadership roles. Durin Gray, sadly, many multi-ethnic churches are silent on issues of race and justice. Recently, many minorities have left these kinds of churches because it was a thin diversity that lacked commitment to a holistic gospel-shaped diversity in which accommodation is realized, not simply assimilation. And then white brothers and sisters, they feel guilt. Like we can never do enough. Why does the past always keep coming up? Hispanic brothers and sisters, they see the immigration debate in the news and they fear if those looking at them will instantly think of their immigration status and not of their faith in their souls, and so they remain in their silos. Biracial people often feel torn. Look, I'll let you go and read all of this. I promise you, I'll send it to you. But you don't really need external books to say what God is showing us right here in the Bible. Think about your own life when you have been in meaningful relationship with someone different. Was it difficult? When the honeymoon phase of the marriage ended, did the gloves come off and it get real? When you birthed a child and brought a new human being in your life, did they not interrupt your swag and change your life? When you've had a roommate and you're messy and she's neat, you're a night owl, she's a morning person, right? That look, man, anytime you have meaningful relationship with anybody, not yourself, Man, I got a bad relationship with myself, right? So let's not even bring like somebody else in the equation, right? So like on, on some level, we ought, to be, we ought to be reading these books and saying, yeah, bro, I get it. It's just hard to relate to my spouse or my kids or my uncle or my mama or my frat brother or whoever. Like anytime you do meaningful relationship with anybody, not you, it's going to be tough. So we shouldn't be surprised. And then you get to passages like this, where the Bible actually says, this vision God is after, it's not easy. And you see it, right? You see it when Peter, when they hear that Peter has gone into the house of this man who is uncircumcised and had a meal and preached the gospel, that, that, that they criticized him and put Peter on the stand. And so who is this circumcision group? Who is this circumcision party? They keep coming up again. They're going to come up again in Acts 15. They come up again in Galatians. They were those of Jewish persuasion who felt like you had to embrace Jesus by faith, but that wasn't enough. You still had to jump through these other hoops. You still had to keep the Jewish calendar. You still had to eat foods Jews ate. You still had to have circumcision. And so when they heard that all Peter did was preach the gospel and they believed, they said, Peter, wait a minute, that's not enough. 
You should have had some scalpels out and you should have had a circumcision party in his house. And you should have went to his refrigerator and you should have took out all the stuff that, that non-Jews aren't supposed to eat. They said, Peter, you didn't go far enough. And I get it. Because God told them to be circumcised. God gave them the dietary laws. And so on one hand, you're like, how can you? And on the other hand, it's like, okay, I get it because you're actually going back to read your Bible. But here's the thing that you got to see when you read this text. God is God. And there is a paradigm in Scripture where God commands something or allows something. And at a later point in redemptive history, God then changes that without changing his character or who he is. You, you, you got to get that. Here's what I mean. If you believe in a literal Adam and Eve, then at some point, Adam and Eve children had to have children. Something had to go down, right? I see some of y'all laughing. Because, right, you just got to think about that. At some point, they were given plants for food. At other points in the Old Testament, you had a wife, and you had another wife, and you had a side chick, and you had, I mean, you just had, and, and it, it was never, like, it, it, it was never pleasant. It was always contention in the Bible when you see that happening. But God seems to have permitted it, permitted it. The, the 12 tribes of Israel came from four different women. Think about holy war. When they went to do holy war, sometimes God says, man, woman, child, everything devoted to destruction. Other times, God says, no, you can keep that or you can keep that. And then God would later say, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his one wife. Leviticus would say, no, you can't lay with your cousins. God would later say, you can have plants and you can eat meat. So what's going on there? God is God. And God can do what he wants without changing the essence of his heart and his character. And here's what God had done. God had said, I know circumcision was, and I know dietary laws was, but I've sent who those things point to. They culminate in Jesus. Those things were shadows and pointers of the substance that was to come, the substance that I will send to you in him. And what they wanted to do was to not pivot and not listen and not change. So they were rebelling. And Peter was rebelling. Did you notice that Peter himself says, look, look at it. It says that this happened three times. Look at verse 10, the voice, verse 9, the voice answered a second time, what God has made clean do not call common. This happens three times, and then all was drawn up, and behold, at that moment, three men came, look at verse 12, and then the Holy Spirit told me to go. I really think, like, I think this is something. I think Peter saw what happened to Ananias in Acts, and Holy Spirit was grieved, and Holy Spirit 
took them out right then and there. And so all of a sudden, Peter is denying the Lord Jesus. No, no, I will not go. I will not go. I will not go. I will not go. And then Holy Spirit says, Peter, I think you need to be going. Peter himself is resisting going. Now, why? Why is this in the Bible? It's to remind us, man, that this family God is building, where he's including the other, that it's hard. It's hard because of our fear of what others might think. It's hard because of our ethnic pride. It's hard because of partiality, which is the word that Peter uses in Acts 10. It's hard because those of the circumcision said nothing about the dead body that Peter touches in Acts 9 because that was, we believe, a Jewish woman. They said nothing about the house of a tanner in Acts 10, the man who skinned animals for a living. They said nothing about that. You know when it became a problem? When he went into a Gentile's home. So they gave Peter a pass when you're breaking the law for Jews. They're partial. And I think it's a misunderstanding of the gospel. Jesus is enough, beloved. It's faith in Christ. Repentance unto new life. It's resting in his finished work on the cross. It is not that plus your culture. That's the struggle here. And it's hard. And that's what happens in multi-ethnic churches. We bump into each other around periphery things. The Bible does not say you are a good Christian if you love Jesus and vote this way. It does not say you're a good Christian if you love Jesus and do X, Y, and Z. I think we are all to be conformed to the image of Christ and the tool that God uses for us to see and to long for and to be transformed towards by the Spirit is his law. And so when you see, honor your father and mother. I don't care if you're black or white, authority matters. Do not murder. I don't care if you're black or white, human life matters. Do not steal. I don't care if you're black or white or Asian or whatever. We're to work and to be generous and to be benevolent and to be gracious. I don't care if you're black or white. We're to honor the Lord's day and to keep it holy. We're to gather and to worship and to be with God's people and to be in singing his praise and to be in the house of the Lord and to be resting from our striving and to be enjoying him on this day, right? It doesn't matter if you're black or white. These things are concrete and we're all to pattern our lives around it. But there is freedom in so many other areas of life. 
And we got to remember that. So what's our help? What has God done to help us along the way here? He wants it. It's difficult. How does he help us? I'm going to make this really quick. It's through the ministry and the presence of Holy Spirit. If you think we can do this on human strength and human creativity and human power, you're mistaken. That the ministry of the Holy Spirit is real. That so many times in Scripture, when, when Paul brings up the Spirit, the Holy Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Like, like, don't just think about that as personal attributes that you need to cultivate. Think about that coming to them in the context of a multi-ethnic church saying, hey, you're going to have to love each other and be patient with each other and forgive each other and be gentle with each other and be tender with each other. And that's what you see happening here in this passage. This is one of the most triune passages in the book of Acts. You see Luke going from God, using God, 11.1, 11.17, to the Lord Jesus Christ, 11.8, 11.16, 11.17, to the Holy Spirit, 11.12, 11.15, 11.16. In other words, here, here is what I think Luke has done for us. Holy Spirit convinces and converts sinners. God wants to grow his family through exalting the finished work of Jesus and the person of Jesus. And, and left to ourselves, we would not see, we would not feel anything towards God. But Holy Spirit comes and he convinces us of our sin. He convinces us of our misery. He convinces us of our need. And then he converts us. And that's what happened in Cornelius' home. Peter came, preached the gospel. They were silent. They were converted. They start speaking in tongue, proclaiming the goodness of the Lord. They were baptized, right? So Holy Spirit came and converted them. But we would be mistaken if we don't see a little conversion happening in this passage. Y'all know how this passage began? They criticized Peter. And you know how it ends? Look at the final word. When they heard these things, they fell silent. Just like they were silent in Cornelius' house letting Peter preach, Peter comes here and preaches to them about the sermon he preached to Cornelius. And they were silent. And then the same ones up there who criticized him, it turns to worship. Look at it. And they, the circumcision, glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. How do you, how do you, how do you account for the change? His Holy Spirit. He doesn't just big C convert us from sin to eternal life, from rebellion to love and worship, from being condemned to eternity apart from the Lord to eternity with God and enjoying him here and now. He does that and that is amazing. But you know what else he does? He converts us and convinces us and convicts us of our pride, of our sin, of our ethnocentrism, of our selfishness. 
And that's what happens here. Holy Spirit shows up. Man, Peter could have went and, and started Caesarea Pentecostal House Church. And he didn't. He chose to go back to Jerusalem and give a defense. Why? Because those in Jerusalem need to get on board with what God is doing. And Holy Spirit shows up. Holy Spirit, the same Spirit given to the Gentiles is the same Spirit given to the Jews. There ain't no black Holy Spirit and no Asian Holy Spirit and no rich Holy Spirit and no poor Holy Spirit. It's one Spirit of Jesus freely given to all who believe and therefore as we are united to him who is the head, we have the Spirit of Jesus in us and the Holy Spirit wants peace in the body of Christ. He wants brotherly affection in the body of Christ. He wants family in the body of Christ. He wants us to celebrate our differences, but make much of what we have in common. We bow the knee to King Jesus. And that is what unites us. And Holy Spirit is going to be with us. We're going to pop off at the mouth. We're going to say some crazy stuff. We might even post some stuff that we regret. And Holy Spirit is going to do what Holy Spirit does. And say, that's your brother. That's your sister. May God help us by his spirit. Let's pray. Father, we bless you. We love you. Thank you for your word. Encourage our hearts. Bless us as we come to the table. What a beautiful way to finish our time together on this Lord's Day. You've built a table for us in the presence of our enemies. You've invited us to your table. And as we eat and drink, may we understand the vertical reconciliation that has happened. You made him who knew no sin to become sin for us that we and him might become righteous in the sight of the Lord. And you've reconciled us to brother. There is no slave. There is no free. There is no Jew. There is no Gentile. We're different, but we are one in the Lord Jesus. Help us, we pray. Amen.